0: Book 1, Part 2, of History of the Kings of Britain This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth. Translated by Aaron Thompson and J. A. Giles. CHAPTER X. A CONSULTATION ABOUT WHAT IS TO BE ASKED OF THE CAPTIVE KING But Brutus, as was said before, having possessed himself of the King's tent, made it his business to keep him a safe prisoner, for he knew he could more easily attain his ends by preserving his life than by killing him. But the party that was with him, allowing no quarter, made an utter destruction in that part which they had gained. The night being spent in this manner, when the next morning discovered to their view so great an overthrow of the enemy, Brutus, in transports of joy, gave full liberty to his men to do what they pleased with the plunder, and then entered the town with the king, to stay there till they had shared it among them. Which done, he again fortified the castle, gave orders for burying the slain, and retired with his forces to the woods in great joy for the victory. After the rejoicings of his people on this occasion, their renowned general summoned the oldest of them and asked their advice, what he had best desire of Pandrasus, who, being now in their power, would readily grant whatever they would request of him in order to regain his liberty. They, according to their different fancies, desired different things. Some urged him to request that a certain part of the kingdom might be assigned them for their habitation, others that he would demand leave to depart and to be supplied with necessaries for their voyage. After they had been a long time to what to do, one of them, named Mempricius, rose up and, having made silence, spoke to them thus. What can be the occasion of your suspense, fathers, in a matter which I think so much concerns your safety? The only thing you can request, with any prospect of a firm peace and security to yourselves and your posterity, is liberty to depart. For if you make no better terms with Pandrasus for his life, than only to have some part of the country assigned you to live among the Greeks, you will never enjoy a lasting peace, while the brothers, sons or grandsons of those whom you killed yesterday shall continue to be your neighbours. So long as the memory of their father's deaths shall remain, they will be your mortal enemies, and upon the least trifling provocation will endeavour to revenge themselves. Nor will you be sufficiently numerous to withstand so great a multitude of people and if you shall happen to fall out among yourselves, their number will daily increase, yours diminish. I propose, therefore, that you request of him his eldest daughter, Ignose, for a wife for our general, and with her gold silver, corn, and whatever else shall be necessary for our voyage. If we obtain this, we may, with his leave, remove to some other country. Chapter 11 Pandrasus gives his daughter Ignoge in marriage to Brutus, who, after his departure from Greece, falls upon a desert island, where he is told by the Oracle of Diana what place he is to inhabit. When he had ended this speech, in words to this effect, the whole assembly acquiesced to his advice, and moved that Pandrasus might be brought in among them, and condemned to a most cruel death, unless he should grant this request. He was immediately brought in, and being placed in a chair above the rest, and informed of the tortures prepared for him unless he would do what was commanded him, he made them this answer. Since my ill fate has delivered me and my brother Antigonus into your hands, I can do no other than grant your request, lest a refusal may cost us our lives, which are now entirely in your power. In my opinion, life is preferable to all other considerations, therefore wonder not that I am willing to redeem it at so great a price. But though it is against my inclination that I obey your commands, Yet it seems matter of comfort to me that I am to give my daughter to so noble a youth, whose descent from the illustrious race of Priamus and Anchises is clear, both from that greatness of mind which appears in him, and the certain accounts we have had of it. For who less than he could have released from their chains the banished Trojans, when reduced under slavery to so many great princes? Who else could have encouraged them to make head against the Greeks, or, with so small a body of men, vanquished so numerous and powerful an army, and taken their king prisoner in the engagement? And therefore, since this noble youth has gained so much glory by the opposition which he has made to me, I give him my daughter Ignoge, and also gold, silver, ships, corn, wine, and oil and whatever you will find necessary for your voyage. If you shall alter your resolution, and think it fit to continue among the Greeks, I will grant you the third part of my kingdom for your habitation. If not, I will faithfully perform my promise, and for your greater security, will stay as a hostage among you, till I have made it good. Accordingly, he held a council, and directed messengers to all the shores of Greece to get ships together, which done he delivered them to the Trojans to the number of 324, laden with all kinds of provision, and married his daughter to Brutus. He made also a present of gold and silver to each man according to his quality. When everything was performed, the king was set at liberty, and the Trojans, now released from his power, set sail with a fair wind. But Ignoge, standing upon the stern of the ship, swooned away several times in Brutus's arms, and with many tears and sighs lamented the leaving of her parents and country nor ever turned her eyes from the shore while it was in sight. Brutus meanwhile endeavoured to assuage her grief by kind words and embraces intermixed with kisses and ceased not from these blandishments till she grew weary of crying and fell asleep. During these and other accidents the winds continued fair for two days and a night together, when at last they arrived at a certain island called Laogasia, which had been formerly wasted by the incursions of pirates, and was then uninhabited. Brutus, not knowing this, sent three hundred armed men ashore to see who inhabited it, but finding nobody, killed several kinds of wild beasts which they met with in the groves and woods and came to a desolate city in which they found a temple of Diana and in it a statue of that goddess which gave answers to those that came to consult her. At last, loading themselves with the prey which they had taken in hunting, they returned to their ships and give their companions an account of this country and city. Then they advised their leader to go to the city, and after offering sacrifices, to inquire of the deity of the place what country was allotted them for their place of settlement. To this proposal all assented, so that Brutus attended with Geryon the augur, and twelve of the oldest men set forward to the temple with all things necessary for the sacrifice. Being arrived at the place and presenting themselves before the shrine with garlands about their temples, as the ancient rites required, they made three fires to the three deities Jupiter, Mercury and Diana and offered sacrifices to each of them. Brutus himself, holding before the altar of the goddess a consecrated vessel filled with wine and the blood of a white heart, with his face looking up to the image, broke silence in these words goddess of woods tremendous in the chase to mountain boars and all the savage race wide o'er the ethereal walks extend thy sway and o'er the infernal mansions void of day look upon us on earth unfold our fate and say what region is our destined seat WHERE SHALL WE NEXT THY LASTING TEMPLES RAISE, AND CHOIRS OF VIRGINS CELEBRATE THY PRAISE?" THESE WORDS HE REPEATED NINE TIMES, AFTER WHICH HE TOOK FOUR TURNS AROUND THE ALTAR, POURED THE WINE INTO THE FIRE, AND THEN LAID HIMSELF DOWN UPON THE hart's SKIN, WHICH HE HAD SPREAD BEFORE THE ALTAR, WHERE HE FELL ASLEEP about the third hour of the night, the usual time for deep sleep. The goddess seemed to present herself before him, and foretell his future success as follows. Brutus, there lies beyond the Gallic bounds, an island which the Western Sea surrounds. By giants once possessed, now few remain To bar thy entrance, or obstruct thy reign, To reach that happy shore thy sails employ. Their fate decrees to raise a second Troy, And found an empire in thy royal line, which time shall ne'er destroy, nor bounds confine." Awakened by the vision, he was for some time in doubt with himself whether what he had seen was a dream or a real appearance of the goddess herself, foretelling him to what land he should go. at last he called to his companions and related to them in order the vision which he had in his sleep at which they very much rejoiced and were urgent to return to their ships and while the wind favoured them to hasten their voyage towards the west in pursuit of what the goddess had promised without delay therefore they returned to their company and set sail again and after a course of thirty days Came to Africa, being ignorant as yet whither to steer. From thence they came to the Philenian altars, and to a place called Salinae, and sailed between Ruscicada and the mountains of Azara, where they underwent great danger from pirates, whom, notwithstanding, they vanquished, and enriched themselves with their spoils. Chapter Twelve. Brutus enters Aquitaine with Corinius. From thence passing the River Malwa, they arrived at Mauritania, where at last, for want of provisions, they were obliged to go ashore and dividing themselves into several bands, they laid waste the whole country. When they had well stored their ships they steered to the Pillars of Hercules, where they saw some of those sea monsters called Sirens which surrounded their ships and nearly overturned them. However, they made a shift to escape and came to the Tyrrhenian Sea, upon the shores of which they found four several nations descended from the banished Trojans that had accompanied Antinor in his flight. The name of their commander was Corinius a modest man in matters of counsel and of great courage and boldness who in an encounter with any person even of gigantic stature would immediately overthrow him as if he were a child when they understood from whom he was descended they joined company with him and those under his government who from the name of their leader were afterwards called the cordish people and indeed were more serviceable to Brutus than the rest of all his engagements. From thence they came to Aquitaine, and entering the mouth of the Loire, cast anchor. There they stayed seven days and viewed the country. Goferius Pictus, who was king of Aquitaine at that time, having an account brought him of the arrival of a foreign people with a great fleet upon his coasts, sent ambassadors to them to demand whether they brought with them peace or war. The ambassadors, on their way towards the fleet, met Corinius, who was come out with two hundred men to hunt in the woods. They demanded of him who gave him leave to enter the king's forest and kill his game, which by an ancient law nobody was allowed to do without leave from the prince. Corinius answered that as for that matter, there was no occasion for asking leave, upon which one of them, named Imbertus, rushing forward with a full drawn bow, levelled a shot at him. Corinius avoids the arrow and immediately runs up to him, and with his bow in his hand breaks his head. The rest narrowly escaped, and carried the news of this disaster to Cafarius. The Pictavian general was struck with sorrow for it, and immediately raised a vast army to revenge the death of his ambassador. Brutus, on the other hand, upon hearing the rumour of his coming, sends away the women and children to the ships, which he took care to be well guarded, and commands them to stay there, while he, with the rest that are able to bear arms, should go to meet the army. At last, an assault being made, a bloody fight ensued. In which, after a great part of the day had been spent, Corineus was ashamed to see the Aquitanians so bravely stand their ground, and the Trojans maintaining the fight without victory. He therefore takes fresh courage, and drawing off his men to the right wing, breaks in upon the very thickest of his enemies. Where he made such slaughter on every side that at last he broke the line and put them all to flight in this encounter he lost his sword, but by good fortune met with a battle-axe with which he clave down to the waist every one that stood in his way. Brutus and everybody else, both friends and enemies, were amazed at his courage and his strength for he brandished about his battle-axe among the flying troops and terrified them not a little with these insulting words whither fly you cowards whither fly ye base wretches stand your ground that ye may encounter Carinius. what for shame do so many thousands of you fly one man however take this comfort for your flight that you are pursued by one before whom the Tyrrhenian giants could not stand their ground, but fell down, slain, in heaps together. Chapter 13 Gafarius Routed by Prutus At these words one of them, named Tobardus, who was a consul, returns with three hundred men to assault him. But Quirinius, with his shield, wards off the blow, and lifting up his battle-axe gave him such a stroke upon the top of his helmet that at once he clave him down to the waist, and then rushing upon the rest, he made terrible slaughter by wheeling about his battle-axe among them, and, running to and fro, seemed more anxious to inflict blows upon the enemy than careful to avoid those they aimed at him some had their hands and arms some their very shoulders and some again their heads and others their legs cut off by him all fought with him only and he alone seemed to fight with all brutus seeing him thus beset out of regard to him runs with a band of men to his assistance at which the battle is again renewed with vigour and with loud shouts and great numbers slain on both sides. But now the Trojans presently gained the victory, and put Goferius with his Pictavians to flight. The king, after a narrow escape, went to several parts of Gaul to procure succours among such princes as were related or known to him. At that time Gaul was subject to twelve princes, who with equal authority possessed the whole country. These receive him courteously and promise with one consent to expel the foreigners from Aquitaine. Chapter 14 Brutus, after his victory over Gaffarius, ravages Aquitaine with fire and sword. Brutus in joy for the victory enriches his men with the spoils of the slain, and then dividing them into several bodies, marches into the country with a design to lay it waste and load his fleet with the spoil. With this view he sets the cities on fire and seizes the riches that were in them, destroys the fields and makes dreadful slaughter among the citizens and common people, being unwilling to leave so much as one alive of that wretched nation. While he was making this destruction all over Aquitaine, he came to a place where the city of Tours now stands, which he afterwards built, as Homer testifies. As soon as he looked out a place convenient for the purpose, he pitched his camp there, for a place of safe retreat when occasion should require. For he was afraid on account of Cafarius's approach with the kings and princes of Gaul, and a very great army which was now come near the place, ready to give him battle. Having therefore finished his camp, he expected to engage with Goferius in two days' time, placing the utmost confidence in the conduct and courage of the young men under his command. Chapter 15 Goferius' fight with Brutus Goferius being informed that the Trojans were in these parts, marched day and night, till he came within a close view of Brutus's camp, and then with a stern look and disdainful smile broke out into these expressions. O oh, wretched fate! Have these base exiles made a camp also in my kingdom? Arm! Arm soldiers! and march through their thickest ranks we shall soon take these pitiful fellows like sheep and disperse them throughout our kingdom for slaves at these words they prepared their arms and advanced in twelve bodies towards the enemy brutus on the other hand with his forces drawn up in order went forth bodily to meet them and gave his men directions for their conduct, where they should assault and where they should be upon the defensive. At the beginning of the attack the Trojans had the advantage and they made a rapid slaughter of the enemy, of whom there fell near two thousand, which so terrified the rest that they were on the point of running away. But, as the victory generally falls to that side which has very much the superiority in numbers, so the Gauls, being three to one in number, though overpowered at first, yet at last joining in a great body together, broke in among the Trojans, and forced them to retire to their camp with much slaughter. The victory thus gained, they besieged them in their camp, with a design not to suffer them to stir out until they should either surrender themselves prisoners or be cruelly starved to death with a long famine. In the meantime, Corinius, the night following, entered into consultation with Brutus and proposed to go out that night by byways and conceal himself in an adjacent wood till break of day. And while Brutus should sally forth upon the enemy in the morning twilight. He with his company would surprise them from behind and put them to slaughter. Brutus was pleased with this stratagem of Corinius, who according to his engagement got out cunningly with three thousand men and put himself under the covert of the woods. As soon as it was day Brutus marshalled his men and opened the camp to go out and fight. The Gauls meet him and begin the engagement. Many thousands fall on both sides, neither party giving quarter. There was present a Trojan named Turanos, the nephew of Brutus, inferior to none but Corinnus in courage and strength of body. He alone with his sword killed six hundred men, but at last was unfortunately slain himself by the number of Gauls that rushed upon him. From him the city of Tours derived its name, because he was buried there. While both armies were thus warmly engaged, Corinius came upon them unawares and fell fiercely upon the rear of the enemy, which put new courage into his friends on the other side and made them exert themselves with increased vigour. The Gauls were astonished at the very shout of Quirinius's men, and thinking their number to be much greater than it really was, they hastily quitted the field. But the Trojans pursued them and killed them in the pursuit, nor did they desist till they had gained a complete victory. Brutus though, in joy for this great success, was yet afflicted to observe the number of his forces daily lessened while that of the enemy increased more and more. He was in suspense for some time, whether he had better continue the war or not. But at last he determined to return to his ships while the greater part of his followers was yet safe, and hitherto victorious, and to go off in quest of the island which the goddess had told him of. So without further delay, with the consent of his company, he repaired to the fleet, and loading it with the riches and spoils he had taken, set sail with a fair wind towards the promised island, and arrived on the coast of Totnes. Chapter 16 Albion Divided Between Brutus and Corinius. The island was then called Albion and was inhabited by none but a few giants. Notwithstanding this, the pleasant situation of the places, the plenty of rivers abounding with fish and the engaging prospect of its woods made Brutus and his company very desirous to fix their habitation in it. They therefore passed through all the provinces forced the giants to fly into the caves of the mountains, and divided the country among them according to the directions of their commander. After this they began to till the ground, and build houses, so that in a little time the country looked like a place that had been long inhabited. At last Brutus called the island after his own name, Britain, and his companions, Britons for by these means he desired to perpetuate the memory of his name from whence afterwards the language of the nation which first bore the name of trojan or rough greek was called british but corinius in imitation of his leader called that part of the island which fell to his share corinia and his people corinians after his name and though he had his choice of the provinces before all the rest, yet he preferred this country, which is now called in Latin Cornubia, either from its being in shape of a horn, in Latin Cornu, or from the corruption of the said name. For it was a diversion to him to encounter the giants which were in greater numbers there than in all the other provinces that fell to the share of his companions. Among the rest was one detestable monster named Gurmagot, in stature twelve cubits, and of such prodigious strength that at one shake he pulled up an oak as if it had been a hazel wand. On a certain day, when Brutus was holding a solemn festival to the gods, in the port where they had first landed, this giant, with twenty more of his companions, came in upon the Britons among whom he made a dreadful slaughter. But the Britons at last, assembling together in a body, put them to the rout and killed them every one but Gurmagot. Brutus had given orders to have him preserved alive, out of a desire to see a combat between him and Corinius, who took a great pleasure in such encounters. Corinius, overjoyed with this, prepared himself and throwing aside his arms, challenged him to wrestle with him at the beginning of the encounter. Corinius and the giant, standing front to front, held each other strongly in their arms, and panted aloud for breath. But Gomagot presently grasping Corinius with all his strength, broke three of his ribs, two on his right side, and one on his left. At which Corinius highly enraged roused up his whole strength and, snatching him upon his shoulders, ran with him, as fast as the weight would allow him, to the next shore, and there, getting upon the top of a high rock, hurled down the savage monster into the sea, where, falling on the sides of craggy rocks, he was torn to pieces and coloured the waves with his blood. The place where he fell. Taking its name from the giant's fall, is called Lam Gormagot, that is Gormagot's leap, to this day. Chapter Seventeen, The Building of New Troy by Brutus upon the River Thames. Brutus, having thus at last set eyes upon his kingdom, formed a design of building a city, and in order to it travelled through the land to find out a convenient situation and coming to the river Thames he walked along the shore and at last pitched upon a place very fit for his purpose. Here therefore he built a city which he called New Troy under which name it continued a long time after till at last by corruption of the original word it came to be called Trinovantum but afterwards, when Ludd, the brother of Cassabellinome, who made war against Julius Caesar, obtained the government of the kingdom, he surrounded it with stately walls and towers of admirable workmanship, and ordered it to be called after his name Caia Lud, that is, the city of Lud. But this very thing became afterwards the occasion of a great quarrel between him and his brother Nennius, who took offence at his abolishing the name of Troy in this country. Of this quarrel Gildas the historian has given a full account, for which reason I pass it over, for fear of debasing, by my account of it, what so great a writer has so eloquently related. Chapter 18 New Troy being built, and laws made for the government of it, it is given to the citizens that were to inhabit it. After Brutus had finished the building of the city, he made choice of the citizens that were to inhabit it, and prescribed them laws for their peaceable government. At this time, Eli the priest governed in Judea, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. At this time also, the sons of Hector, after the expulsion of the posterity of Antenor, reigned in Troy, as in Italy did Silvius Aeneas, the son of Aeneas, the uncle of Brutus, and the third king of the Latins. End of Book 1 Part 2